Uchtaron, a Bani Higin, Bogasagina Ushla, Tofalterov. I'm delighted to be here with my family and friends to play a short programme of music. Each piece has its own musical story to tell and draws from a rich family heritage. This music has become part of Irish folklore. The Sulagum Gumanig Shivtanavas, Gurmagath. I'm going to play a piece now, um, one of the few descriptive pieces in traditional Irish music. Um, it's called The Fox Chase, and it was composed by a man called Edward Highland Keating in 1793. He was um, based in Kerr, County Tipperary, and it was this piece has been, well, it's popularised by my grandfather, Leo, who used to play it throughout his lifetime on the 2RN on the radio. And um, so I'm going to give it a go. It, it describes a fox chase. It starts off slowly, builds up speed, and then there's the sounding of the horns, and the attempt, the the kill, and the sounding of the horns again, and then the lament for the dead fox, and the gallop home. Thank you. 
save it. Good evening, everyone. Um, I'm going to perform a song. I'm going to accompany Sinead singing a song called The Isle of Inishfree. Uh, the song was written by my father, Dick Farrelly, who came from Kells in County Meath. And the song was first performed in the local Vincent de Paul Hall in Mar on uh, St. Patrick's Night of March 1950. And since then, it has traveled the world. It was made famous by uh, Bing Crosby initially, and it was chosen by John Ford as the theme music of the film The Quiet Man. Yeah, great. 
we are celebrating the opening of the first Irish International Shaw Conference, and it gives me great pleasure to introduce the man himself. Holy. Well, this is a surprise. Have you all come to see me, ladies and gentlemen? Well, I should never have expected this. Oh, well. It's really extremely kind of you. I'm very glad to see you. You know, I'm very glad you've come. Because I like people to see me. I don't know how it is. But people who only know me from reading my books, 
or sometimes even from seeing my plays, get a most unpleasant impression of me. And uh, the people who really uh, meet me, as you have been kind enough to meet me, uh, to meet me now, well, they see that I am a most harmless person. I'm quite a kindly person, you know. One thing, of course, that I'm very glad uh, that you've all seen me here tonight is uh, that you'll know me when you uh, see me again. Now, I'll tell you something that happened to me the other day. I was at Conway in North Wales. I was in the street. A little girl came over to me. She pulled out an autograph book and she said, please give me your autograph. Well, I said, what do you want my autograph for? I'm not Mr. Lloyd George. Oh, she said, I know you're not Mr. Lloyd George. Well, I said, now who am I? And she said, oh, I don't know. I've forgotten the name, but my father told me to go and get your autograph. Now, let me... It's quite possible that some little girl who is here on this occasion may imagine that she can get an autograph out of me that, that way, because I gave that little girl the autograph. But you won't get me a second time, so it's not the slightest use trying that on. Now, ladies and gentlemen, I'm afraid I'm always an extremely busy man. At least I pretend I am. And I'm afraid I must go back to work. Uh, I must say good night. Oh, by the way, stop. Uh, this may be a matinee. Good night may not be the right thing to say. However, call it good afternoon, good day, and anyhow, goodbye and good luck. Good luck. Uktron, uh, guests, colleagues, my name is Hugh Brady. I'm president of the UCD. And I must say, when I took up this job eight and a half years ago, I never thought that I'd be sandwiched virtually live between George Bernard Shaw and President Michael D. Higgins. <laughs> so I feel somewhat inadequate standing before you. Um, but I am delighted to have this opportunity to welcome to UCD this conference celebrating the work of George Bernard Shaw. Uh, we're honored to have the president here to open this long overdue reappraisal of Shaw's role in Irish culture. Uh, and I'd like to welcome the members of the International Shaw Society uh, to Dublin, and I hope that the collaboration between the Society, between UCD Humanities Institute and UCD School of English, Drama and Film will continue and flourish. Shaw's contribution to world theatre and to the broad intellectual life of his time has been so great that his relationship with Ireland has been sometimes overlooked. This venue, of course, reminds us that he is not only one of Ireland's greatest playwrights, but also an ongoing contributor to the life of the city of Dublin through his endowment of this wing of the National Gallery. His combination of creativity, artistic integrity, idealism and philanthropy make him an inspiration uh, an inspirational figure, particularly, I think, in the times that, that we live in. And in that context also, his glorious contrariness maybe reminds us that the role of an intellectual is very often to say the one thing which no one wants to hear. Uh, 
Now, he's such a complex character, he's touched, he touches us all in, in so many different ways. I mentioned inadequacy. As a nephrologist, I always feel guilty in Shavian surroundings because, of course, he died or is said to have died of renal failure, I think, uh, but at the age of 94. So maybe the search for medical perfection uh, can go on, but he had a very good innings. So please don't blame the nephrologists. Uh, President Higgins reminded us in his speech earlier this year that Shaw was convinced of the power of education in not only lifting their fellow citizens out of poverty, but also of such citizens understanding, participating, and in time, offering an alternative form of society. And he issued a call to the university sector internationally to, fulfill, to fulfill its moral purpose of original thought and emancipatory scholarship. Uh, such an ambition for higher education is distinctively Shavian. The collaboration between the National Gallery, the International Shaw Society, UCD Humanities Institute, and Smock Alley Theatre honors such ambitions for higher education. The conference will move between the university, uh, this event in the city centre tonight, and Dawkey Castle, where Professor Tony Roach, here before us, will lecture on Thursday. And moving out and beyond the university, it will combine academic discourse, artistic expression, and celebration of the cultural heritage of the city of Dublin. I'd like to thank the, the President for so graciously agreeing to launch the event, uh, Audrey McNamara of the UCD School of English Drama and Film for bringing this conference to Shaw's hometown and uh, for her energy and dedication in organizing it. The International Shaw Society and especially uh, Nelson O'Callig Ritchell, uh, our colleagues from Trinity College, uh, Nicholas Green and Peter, Peter Gann, Tony Roach and Eamon Jordan from UCD School of English Drama and Film, and Valerie Norton and Jardine Meany from UCD Humanities Institute. President, in introducing you, I'd like to thank you again for taking your, the time out of your schedule to be here tonight. Uh, for those of you who don't spend a lot of your time in Ireland, uh, President Michael D. Higgins has been a wonderful champion uh, for the arts as a poet himself, as an academic, and as a politician, and of course now as Uchtron the Heron, as President of Ireland. So it's now my great pleasure to ask Uchtron the Heron, President Michael D. Higgins, uh, to address you. Well, er in Gitolchus is Minlam, Fierkin Forcha, Darig Rev Gokden, a Totakaterin, Kun Abar George Bernard Show of Flays, Enilishian Aver. It's a very great pleasure for me to be here, uh, and may I thank um, President Brady for the generous introduction. I should tell you that since I gave that paper on the intellectual crisis of the universities. Professor G. H. Huxley has given a very fine paper to the Irish Federation of University Teachers, which, drawing on Aristotle, really strengthens the argument you would like to hear. I'm privileged to be here after the wonderful music of the Rosam Ensemble.
and I thank you for that because there is a contribution to Irish culture that is enduring. But I'm so pleased uh, to welcome here the, those who have come from abroad, the International Show Society that have been studying the works of George Bernard Shaw, and all of, all of you uh, for coming here. And I, I pay tribute to Audrey McNamara for her invitation, and, I, I, and indeed the assistance she has received from Professor Meany and the Humanities Institute at UCD, the International Show Society, whom I met in the way in, the School of English Drama and Film, and many others on both sides of the Atlantic, not least Professor Nelson McCallagh-Richo and Dr. Peter Graham. Uh, I'd like actually to begin where I left off to some extent at the London School of Economics and Politics. On that occasion, I paid tribute to what I regarded as a really marvellous work of scholarship, and that is Dr. Callagh-Richo's book, Shaw, Singh, Connolly, and Socialist Provocation. I regard it as a very significant contribution to the understanding of the literary, historical, and biographical themes of the early decades of the 20th century, their intersection, and Shaw's role in the immense social and political changes that were taking place. As president of Ireland, people sometimes asked me during the campaign for the presidency, how will you celebrate the different events, the centenaries that are coming? Today, yesterday, was the day of the foundation of the Irish Labour Party, of which I had the honour to be president once. It was, we celebrate as well, 1914, the Great War, the founding of the Volunteers, North and South, and the Great Lockout of 1913, which absorbs so much of George Bernard Shaw's concerns. Shaw is important. Now, Nicholas Green, whom I met in the way too, has argued in his essay, Shaw and the Irish Theatre, an unacknowledged presence, that it was a peculiar phenomenon that Shaw, as one of Ireland's most popular and most frequently performed dramatist, should so long have remained, as he put it, the invisible man of Irish theatre. I think that relegation might be a more appropriate word uh, than invisible. But I'm glad that, as the, your conference has the title, that Shaw is back in town. In the same way as when I was in New York speaking to the American Irish Historical Society, I actually suggested that leaving Eugene O'Neill out of the repertoire of theatre was a very, very great mistake. Shaw is important here to us in this circumstance, and O'Neill is forever important, in my view, in Irish theatre. And it's interesting, this relegation about Shaw, because while the recent sellout production of 2011 of Pygmalion in the Abbey Theatre was directed by Annabel Common, is testament to the enduring attraction to the public of Shaw's work, bearing in mind that although Shaw was the most performed playwright throughout the history of the Abbey, this recent production was the first time that Pygmalion had been staged by the Abbey Theatre. It had, of course, been staged by the Gate Theatre in 2004. I've thought about that since your invitation to me to speak, and I thought that maybe the story of the rise of Eliza Doolittle from lowly to but respectable occupation through the class system to wealth and adulation has perhaps a new resonance for a 21st century audience that has been forced away from its fantasies by recent events.
With my particular interest in what I had to write for this evening was in Shaw as a public man. That phrase includes a number of different identities, as it were, in Irving Goffman's sense of the presentation of the self. As moralist, as essayist, as dramatist, as Fabian lecturer, as advocate, and indeed, as you have just seen, as ironist or humorist. George Bernard Shaw had little time, of course, for sentimental evasion. There's just a hint of this in what you have just seen. Even at the height of his success in the theatre, he took time to write to the papers about the excessive romanticizing that surrounded, for example, the sinking of the Titanic. It was Shaw who reminded the world that the romanticizing only obscured the real facts from the public when facts were needed as to who was down below and who was upstairs and their relative chances of being saved in the sea. Shaw asked, what is the use of all those ghastly blasphemous inhuman braggartly lying? So that even in 1912, at the height of his success in theatre, he did not shy away from expressing his civic responsibility and indeed views that he believed were his vocation, as he saw it, to invite the public to address facts, no matter how unpopular. And he did not trim his message either, I think, on such issues as the slums of Dublin or in exposing the Philistinism of an uninformed commerce. It's useful, I think, for us to put our minds back a hundred years to what prevailed in Dublin in 1912. The slums, the tenements that are, for example, detailed in the appendix to Krauss's seminal book on Shauna Casey. Indeed, Shaw did, perhaps more cervically than he should once comment, a hearing of the bombing of Dublin. That is, it was a pity it didn't take the whole lot out, with the slums of Dublin included. And that responsibility to wild citizenship, to the public wild, fed Shaw's plays and his life. And I believe, this is my own, that Shaw's rationalism, delivered through the gradualism of the Fabians, I think in his decision to throw his lot in with the possibilities of the conversion of a middle class and the rewards of education, it required at times a suspension of passion, such a suspension of passion as I think separates him from John Millington Singh when it comes to the politics of freedom, be it the freedom of national independence or the gender issues that arise in pursuing freedom that Shaw was very interested in the human story and championed the rights of all who were underprivileged both socially and economically is obvious from the range of his work. A, any, a prolific dramatist who wrote over 50 plays, those like Widower's Houses, which deals with what I have just said, slum landlordism, Major Barbara and capitalism, Candida and Getting Married, which deal with gender relationships, St. Joan, which is referred to by some critics as one of his greatest dramatic works. But for my purposes, as we are in the year, as I have just referred to, of so many centenary celebrations, his great Irish play of 1904, John Bull's Other Island, has particular relevance for those later generations of scholars who seek to recover the context 
and the political movements and the tension and the differences of the 20th century, the early 20th century. The honour that shows play of co plays course in public brought to Ireland went far beyond his 1904 play produced in London, rejected by Yeats as too long. And after all, Yeats did make the comment, I think, to somebody as Edna O'Brien reminded me last night, that Shaw was like a sewing machine. He was part of the dialogue Shaw in Dublin and London with William Butler Yeats, Lady Augusta Gregory, John Millington Singh, and Dublin socialists such as Frederick Ryan, the trade union organiser, William O'Brien, Francis Sheaf-Skefferton, James Larkin, and James Connolly. I think it is sometimes in listing these names and approaching from what is there in relation to the discussion of the published work, it is possible to miss the dialectic that went on between these writers and as, as they differed and as they shared certain opinions. One thing that they did share, I think now, and this is a point uh, well noted, is an admiration for Ibsen and an appreciation of Ibsen's universal themes. But Shaw's circumstances, of course, even in his appearance, and of course in his personal circumstances, were very different from those of John Millington Singh. John Millington Singh is interesting, I think, in taking with him, for example, one of my predecessors, Douglas de Hirda's Love Songs of Connacht, with him when he visited the Iron Islands. The difference in life circumstances indeed could not be greater, and it was reflected, as I suggest, and you will no doubt debate, in the gradualism of the one and the passion of the other. But those who differed on tactics or strategy at the time, strategies of the liberation and the left, they could come together on a principle, as they did in 1913, when Shaw shared a platform in London with James Connolly, A.E. George Russell, in a rally of support of James Larkin and the locked-out Dublin workers. Dublin workers that would go out from the end of that year and would have to go back defeated to work, with one in seven of them rehired by employers who otherwise believed in religion and who believed in ethics. It testifies to show his commitments, politics, and his role as a public intellectual, is that in a way it tempered Shaw to a point of almost excess in his suggestion, for example, that the arm that the workers in Dublin batten charged as they were, and he recognizing the violence of the state should be armed. Again, a matter for contention and debate. Shaw wrote, of course, also in the immediate aftermath of 1916 to the London press in an attempt to prevent or suspend the executions of the rebel leaders, including Connolly. And he ran a huge correspondence with his own contacts from a different class in the establishment in his efforts to save Roger Casement. So Shaw, George Bernard Shaw, remains one of Ireland's, and particularly Dublin's, most illustrious sons. Leaving Dublin in 1876 to go to London, where he established himself as a music and theatre critic, he was to carve out, as I have suggested, a, a space as a public intellectual, with engaging with the social issues 
and indeed the confrontations and the discourse of the times. A Fabian socialist, he was one of the four founders of the London School of Economics with Sidney and Beatrice Webb and a regular lecturer on Fabian themes. So we sail quietly, George Bernard Shaw, Marvorali, Mardramaturus, Marakantir, Agus Bogunyamor Laroe, Eganam, Agus Benuncush, Gavorshe Lervas, Divolto Fuji, Mar the Irish Independent, No Art of Griffith. I should say to you that as you saw Shaw's presentation of himself, that presentation was at some times abused. Indeed, Shaw's public life as a moralist, dramatist and raconteur turned him into what we might regard now as a celebrity, a dreadful word, <laughs> and a, an empty room, a celebrity of his time. And this would indeed be abused by virulent, in virulent criticism of him in such places as the Irish Independent and particularly by Arthur Griffith. The Irish Independent caricatured Shaw's form of presentation, not just as you have seen in discourse, but at his lectures, and they mocked his humour. They referred to him as Mr Shaw. That humour with its belief of subverting the middle class's notions of themselves, their respectability and its repressions, was seized on as a means to dislodge his, the arguments he had delivered at his lectures. And of course, what is very interesting there is that Shaw's attendances might have been fairly well chosen. They might have been chosen as audiences that were quite likely for conversion. As different, for example, in the case of Singh, who would have taken the full wrath of the implications of what he was suggesting. But for William Martin Murphy, indeed, it was a short distance from such a treatment of Shaw to describe his later lectures as anti-Catholic, taking advantage of the popular ignorance of the time. And this is so well debated, the debate is so well illustrated in the debate as to whether or not the public in general might benefit from public provision in the arts. And really, last night watching television, I was hoping that debate was over in Ireland and that we could now accept the central role of the arts as a form of citizenship. But it isn't. And they are still there, as they would say in the west of Ireland. The debate as to whether the public in general might benefit from public provision in the arts in the same way as they had in the provision of public parks. And the National Gallery, where we are now, is a good example. William Martin Murphy had written in the Irish Independent that the project was one promoted by dilettantes. And as he put it in an editorial in that paper in relation to the National Gallery proposal, there is no popular demand, nor one which will, and one which will never be, of the smallest use to the common people of the city. George Russell, Rob Rovers, perhaps the most, the strongest in his castigation of such opponents as Murphy. He referred to them as the meanest, the most uncultured, the most materialistic and carping crowd that ever made a citizen ashamed of his fellow countrymen. But the gallery where we are now, and this extension where we are now, went on. And even in its early years, and this is the good news, it was to receive extraordinary generous donations and bequests, including one donation of paintings of 200 paintings and many more. 
but being now as we are at the beginning of a series of centenary celebrations of significant events in that second decade of the 20th century that is so important. That includes, as I've said, the Home Rule Acts, the founding of the Ulster Volunteers, the Irish Volunteers, the founding of the Labour Party in 1912, the 1914 World War, the rising of 1916, and much more. We are challenged as to what should we remember, what should we revise, what we should emphasise, and how should we execute this challenge to the ethics of memory. I believe that recovering the plural and tolerant discourse necessary for such an ethical contemplation of all these events, of which George Bernard Shaw was a part, is a valuable exercise, but we must do so in an ethical, flexible, pluralist and even forgiving way. We are well capable of such an ethical exercise, I believe, and it will be, I hope, our choice, rather than any evasive blandness which would be neither authentic nor valuable. So the launch, for example, in the middle of your conference of Dr. Kelly Richard's book, Shaw, Singh, Connolly and Socialist Provocation, is well placed at the centre of your deliberations, engaging as it does both the promise and the contradictions of those two early decades that preceded independence. And preparing for the opening of your conference constituted its own provocation for myself. I set to thinking, for example, of the extraordinary influence of the writers at the end of the 19th and the, 20, and the beginning of the 20th century, the centrality of the literary debate, of Ibsen, and in particular his Doll's House, and its influence on so many writers and politicians, and in so many different ways. And I was intrigued, and I picked it up in an appendix to Richard Kelly's work, and that was, it occurred to me, as an image of five Noras, the Noras of Ibsen, Singh, Shaw's Nora, O'Casey's Nora, and the living Nora of James Joyce. And through these female characters, one could understand so much, not only of the writer's intention, but of the enduring value of the moral principles involved. Ibsen's Nora, after all, leaves and rejects any sentimental forgiveness. Shaw's Nora, well, her decision in a way, is it representative of a sophisticated, calculated rationalism? Or is it a defeat? So it is very appropriate that you have a paper at your conference that deals with the woman question. As I've said, Dr. Carrick Richard had, of course, dealt with the contrasting treatment of the Nora question. In in a wonderful way, and to the contrasting treatments of its enslavement and its dilemma of loveless bondage. In the contrasting strategies of John Millington Singh's Nora in the Shadow of the Glen, and Shaw's Nora of John Bull's Other Island. In the former, a confrontation of bourgeois morality with a celebration of life, sexuality, freedom, and language itself results in the choice of the freedoms. In the latter, Shaw's rationalism asserts itself with its necessary concession to reformism. His choosing to subvert the audience with a subtle irony, you must make up your own mind, is perhaps at times lost. Singh's Nora is prophetic, perhaps in valuing words, a stranger with even words from a stranger, 
with a fine piece of talk over the the property relations that would be recounted in later rural Ireland. I think of what does she say? It's you I'll go with because you have a fine bit of language in you. And later, when Nancy Shepherd Hughes, the anthropologist, studies the long silences of rural Ireland, the uncomfortable silences of loveless unions, cemented by property, respectability and duty. What a difference. Shaw's belief in Fabian gradualist change, however, I repeat, does not exclude him from those issues that combine both radical and reformist socialists such as in the event of the lockout of 1913, or as I have given and illustrated, the provision of a gallery for the arts in Dublin. So your conference is timely, and it emphasises the importance of us never forgetting the centrality of the literature debate in the events that led up to 1916 and independence. The differences between Shaw, Singh and O'Casey as they responded to the context and policy of their times are simply of first-order importance, not only to literary scholarship, but to students of history and political theory, and above all, to all of our citizens now and in the future. And then the question arises, that line that was crossed by some writers who sought to make literature an instrument of emancipation. That is worthy of debate as is later the extreme alternative response that separated literature from life and that it ended up at best as evasion. So the freedom of the writer's imagination will always be, will always be in tension with the curve of historical change, but it is never determined. When the balance works, literary brilliance can be both emancipatory of past and present but above all, an invitation to the life of the spirit in a world waiting to be born. And it makes of literature in that achievement a celebratory emancipation. Your conference will, I hope, spark an enduring debate. There are so many good questions. The Ibsen influence is but one theme in the literary heritage and such an important one. And writing in Shaw's time was, as I have suggested to you, in the flux of life and change, that atmosphere that prevailed in the public debate on the response to the lockout of 1913, the executions of 1916, or the debate about the public and art. These debates must be regarded when all the excesses of revisionism gone wrong have been taken into account, to have been about in their time about the promise of democracy and the public world. And as I finish, I recognise again and remind us all of how we came to be in the extension to this beautiful building, the legacy of the residual George Bernard Shaw estate, or indeed in another part of the city of the Hugh Lane estate, Isabi has been and remains of benefit to generation after generation of Irish people. And it was made possible only by the debate then being won and such words as those I quoted from the editorial of a leading Irish newspaper of the 22nd of January 1913 in relation to the proposal for a national gallery being defeated. The forces that decide the democratic rights of workers and the rights of the public to the liberating power and pleasure of art were from the same stable. The people of Dublin were not only to be denied trade union rights, but to be locked away from the arts and the liberating power as well. 
that the writer's views won, that they won out with the public, is something for which we must always remain grateful. And I regret, really, the fact that I will not be able to stay on and be present for what promises to be a series of papers that engages with such rich themes. But I look forward, maybe, to perhaps reading them in the near future. May I wish your conference every success, and it is a pleasure to have been asked to be here to open it. Thank you very much. welcome the common but also of course the uncommon people this evening president michael d higgins that was a, an absolutely fantastic wonderful introduction to the conference dr brady it's my welcome as sean rainbird the new boy in town to welcome gbs back into town with this conference and we're sitting in the millennium wing of the national gallery President Higgins talked about gradualism as an approach to life, politics, but also culture and the arts, and museums are really the incorporation of this idea of gradualism. Every now and again, they move forward in great shakes of the tail and new buildings come to pass, but actually we're here to essentially to love the art that we look after, that we cherish, that we preserve for future generations. We're here to educate people of all stripes, welcome them all into our building, the young and the old. And this is what actually happens in this wonderful museum that I joined about four weeks ago. To the list of George Bernard Shaw's many other qualities is, of course, a great one for this institution, the quality of philanthropist. And it's perhaps unusual that the artist, whether a writer, or a visual artist, a playwright, whatever it might be, decides to step across the fence and support institutions, possibly precisely those kinds of organizations that he or she has spent a lot of time during their lifetime trying to kick into action. And in this case, we see the true benefits of someone as public-spirited and as broad-minded as George Bernard Shaw taking his responsibilities as a citizen, not just as a writer and as a politician and as a, an advocate, uh, forward into an area that will really benefit all of us, not just those of us who are in Dublin, but many, many visitors from across Ireland and internationally, who choose to make their way into uh, this museum, where we, of course, not only put before them some wonderful works of art, some of which were bought with funds from the George Bernard Shaw Fund, including works by Signac and Pissarro and Giovanni Di Paolo and many others. 
And we want to keep that presence. And so if you at some point go through the atrium, you'll confront the sculpture, the life-size sculpture by Paul Trubetskoy of George Bernard Shaw, standing between two other great benefactors, the Bites, who again, in more recent years, have given extraordinarily, generously to this institution to help us fulfill what we wish to do, which is not only to help educate people in all manner of ways about the visual arts, about all kinds of arts, but also to enrich people's lives and to allow people to enjoy the culture that is offered in this country, in this city, in such a, an extraordinary variety of ways. I particularly like the juxtaposition now. We have George Bernard Shaw in the atrium in a commanding position, guarding the entrance to our Irish rooms where we have another Dubliner celebration happening with James Joyce and these two phenomenal figures, characters, writers can really go head to head on this kind of occasion and both will be enriched by the presence of the other. So as we also in this museum, you mentioned it President Higgins, approach a decade of centenaries and it's something which will preoccupy all of the cultural institutions of the city. We hope to approach them with the intelligence, with the patience, with the perseverance of those that have gone before us, but particularly the example of George Bernard Shaw, who took a deliberately multi-dimensional view on the events of his day in order that we can, on mature reflection 100 years later, begin to understand and reconsider and reconfigure our responses. So it is a very, very great pleasure to welcome all of you to your conference and welcome you in specifically to your opening event with us. It's been a great honor for the National Gallery to have hosted this opening event and a great honor that uh, the President has attended and I wish you every success over the coming days. Many thanks. Thank you, everybody. If I could just call now on Professor Leonard Connolly, President of the International Shaw Society, to make a presentation to the President. President Higgins, um, I'm not sure that your job allows you much time for leisure reading, but in honor of Shaw's return to Dublin and in warm appreciation of your support for this conference, I hope you will be kind enough to accept from the International Shaw Society not one, not two, but three books. Um, one, the heaviest of the three, I might add, uh, documents and illustrates the history of the Shaw Festival in the unlikely small town of Niagara-on-the-Lake, Ontario, where for every year, for the past 50 years, Shaw's plays have been produced, some several times over. The second book, is about a fascinating relationship between Shaw and the uh, world boxing champion, Gene Tunney, written by his son, Jay Tunney, who's here this evening and will be talking about his book later in this conference. 
Thank you. And the third gathers together virtually all of Shaw's essays and interviews on Ireland. And they are as provocative and sparkling today as when they were first published between 1868 and 1950. Please accept these books with our thanks and our gratitude. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you.